to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 153, recorded on July the 4th. Happy Independence Day to my American friends. Uh, the Photo Geekery Show, where uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, always joined with a fellow photo geek to just essentially geek out about the latest photo news on a weekly basis you are here for that so uh we are not going to waste too much time before we get into it but uh my guest this week is a special guest a good friend of mine and somebody that i need to have on this show more often chris nichols joins the program today chris how are you doing I'm doing great, and uh, thanks again for having me back. Congratulations, 153. I'm uh, I'm happy to see the show going strong as ever. Yeah, well, it's uh, I, I try to do them once a week, although you know it's yeah. it's kind of hard uh, because well, I mean, life gets in the way sometimes, and nobody pays me to do this, so this is just a labor <laughs> of love. Um, and uh, you know, and that might change in the future. Who knows? But but for now, uh, I appreciate uh, that everybody you know forgives me when I do miss a week. But uh, it's been a while since I've chatted with you, uh, uh, Chris. Uh, w- w- what's new and exciting? Oh, you know, I mean, I don't know if it's exciting, but uh, I just recovered from a serious injury. That was that was interesting. Okay, okay. So uh, for for those that don't follow DP Review and DP Review TV, where uh, uh, Chris and uh, and Jordan Drake uh, do the the wonderful dynamic duo of reviewing cameras and sharing far more opinions on about <laughs> buttons and knobs and things than anybody thinks is healthy, um, but. Uh, if, if you haven't been following them there, Chris, what happened? Yeah. So, um, you know, Jordan and I were shooting, um, we were in a park just in Calgary. I mean, it's Prince Island park. It's a very sort of popular park in central downtown Calgary. And, uh, I was wearing flip flops. Cause of course we got hit by this huge heat wave, right? I mean, it's been 35 degrees, 37 degrees. Right. And, uh, walking on a path and I trip a little bit and I'm like, Oh, I think I stubbed my toe or something. And uh, I look down and all of a sudden I just see a ton of blood. I'm like bleeding everywhere. And I'm like, Jordan, I think I stepped on a stick. I assumed it was like a broken branch. Cause this is on a wooded path dot. I mean, there's, you know, and, and Jordan has a look and he's like, it's a piece of metal. And I'm like, what? And I look and there's a piece of rebar sticking out of the ground about three inches and uh, it caught the tip of my flip flop and my, my weight came down and it just cut me like right in between my big toe and the toe next to it. And if anybody's feeling squeamish right now, I can go into more details if you'd like. Uh, no, I think that is plenty. <laughs> uh, and this was uh, this was while you were out filming. So this was caught on video, right? Yes, it was caught on video. I mean, Jordan was like, uh, should I shoot your foot? Like, should we show all the blood? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, probably not, Jordan. Uh, but he was really good. I mean, he ran to the closest convenience store, got me a pack of Band-Aids. Um, I proceeded to wash my foot in pond water, which is, you know, in hindsight, not a great That's, idea. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't, you know, I should have said, Jordan, bring me a bottle of water or something. But anyways, you know, and uh, yeah, it, it stopped bleeding. But of course, it's deep review TV. We got to finish the show done. So rather than go to the hospital like a sane person should do, we shot for another two hours. Um, <laughs> Jordan gave me piggybacks or I hobbled wherever I had to go. And, uh, and then finally we ended the video outside the hospital. He was kind enough to drop me off and three stitches, a tetanus shot and a course of antibiotics later. And I was home in a lot of pain. Uh, well, that's, uh, it's <laughs> harrowing and anybody that wants to watch that video can find it at DP. Room there you TV. go. <laughs> um, it's, more, it's, more, a, it's uh, amazing. Was, oh, sorry. You're done. 
No, no, just carry on. I was just going to say that it's more an adventure than I've been on in the last little while. You know, boring is good, Don. I would take boring because it's amazing how much you actually need your feet and uh, how much you take for granted being able to be mobile. So it kind of gave me another appreciation of being in a situation where, I mean, you know, we have a lot of people who write in and follow us and, and, you know, they're not able to walk or they're not, not able to walk easily. And it's amazing to still hear like these people find ways to get out, keep their photography going, keep shooting. And that's amazing because I mean, I was a baby for a week and a half. I can't imagine if it was a longer term situation. And uh, so, yeah, I've got a lot of respect for those people that make their photographic uh, pursuits continue despite adversity. And uh, luckily it's been almost exactly two weeks and I'm, I'm pretty much back to normal. I'm gonna have a nasty scar, but I'm I'm able to walk. I did notice in in one of your latest videos, uh, which leads into our first story, that you were sitting down the entire time. Yes, um, and <laughs> so you're still taking it easy, and I appreciate that. Um, but that brings us into that first story, which for sure, uh, so- something that we touched on when it was a rumor. And we could only talk about rumors at the time a couple of weeks ago that Nikon was coming out with a retro styled mm. uh, mirrorless camera in their Z series. And now we can talk about the um, the official announcement release of the Nikon ZFC. Uh, mm-hmm. DP Review has done a lot of coverage on this. Uh, there's initial reviews uh, on the website with all sorts of stats and specs for people to go and look at. But I encourage people to take a look at the hands-on that you and Jordan mm. did. Um, but so I, I want to talk about that. But okay, you you kind of in in the video you grazed over sort of the fact that Nikon's sort of done this before and Fujifilm is doing this and there are some things that you liked and that you didn't like. Um, but honestly, is this, uh, is this the direction that you would like to see every manufacturer go with at least part of their product line? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I've been asking Nikon to make this specific camera for, I don't know, probably almost a decade, right? Bothering the bother, really since the DF came out. And, you know, I like the DF in terms of it had an interesting sensor, you know, and, and all the stuff you kind of needed was there. But I really felt the DF was um, a real letdown for me because I felt like they kind of just borrowed certain design elements, totally superficial, and otherwise made a camera that I didn't feel really handled very well. And, uh, and I was really Yeah, it was kind of bulky. And it, it just, was. it didn't, it, it did, it felt okay. But it didn't feel like its design matched the purpose of the aesthetics. Like the, the, yeah. the two of the things just felt disconnected. And I, I get what Nikon was going by not including video features in it whatsoever because it was supposed to be a throwback to an older era. Um, I think that mentality failed them. Yeah. And they should have because the technology is there in the camera body, the processors, the sensor, everything can do video. I'm surprised that they never did a firmware update that added video. Yeah. I mean, to me, it, it just felt like another one of their sort of mid-range plastic SLRs in, in build quality that had some design elements that were hinting at a, at a heritage. But really, they needed to make a compact camera. And I think it made a lot more sense than when mirrorless came out. Um, and I'm happy to see that we have the ZFC. And I'm happy to see that they really made it feel very similar to a classic Nikon FEFM, you know, kind of... It, it looks like... Uh, 
look at the photos of this thing. It yeah. looks a- as near identical to the classic Nikon FE type cameras uh, yeah. as it possibly can uh, without sacrificing the modern conveniences, you know, where specific buttons and dials that we expect mm-hmm. to, to be are. Um, on the top is, is, is quite great because uh, it's got... Uh, it, it has dials for ISO. It has dials for shutter speed, and you can switch the. Uh, you know, I, I believe it was the the shutter speed. Uh, you have got the option to go to third stops, uh, and that you can control through a, a separate dial. But you've got all your full stops on top, mm-hmm. and it's just it's a tactile experience. I like the fact that they included uh, a a small LCD screen on the top that gives a readout for the f stop. Um, I think that screen and especially the real estate that it takes up could have become a much more multi-purpose type of display. They put on a really old school, classic, uh, just like single digit LCD, uh, with a large black border around it where you could have made the entire area of that coverage, uh, a black first LCD, like I, I love on the top of my Lumix S1H, you know, it's, it's black and then everything comes out as, as white on top. And you could have possibly displayed more information with a, uh, a pixel display sure. uh, or a square pixel display. Uh, so th- there are a few things that I could have possibly pointed at them and said, yeah, do better. But for a first time out the gate, at least in their new platform, it looks like they've learned a lot from the DF. Uh, they've probably learned a lot from Fujifilm, actually, because this is shockingly reminiscent of some of the mannerisms that their cameras have. Uh, and I like it. Uh, yeah. w- what is it hands on? Because I know when I pick up my old Canon AE1, it's heavy <laughs> yeah, and it's tactile, but the, the heft is actually part of the experience and this camera is pretty light right yeah so i mean that's why in our video we were first fortunate enough to actually have a sample that we could hold i mean that was a big deal right Um, because i think that's really such an important part of this particular camera that's what people are kind of curious about it is definitely lighter than a classic camera Um, some parts of the construction are plastic but i mean the body and housing are still magnesium but yeah it's definitely lighter than a classic camera but the feel the size the dials they're they're very good. And I, I would even say um, reminiscent of Fuji's highest end cameras like the X-T4, certainly better than something in a similar price point like the X-T30 kind of thing. Um, but yeah, the tactile, that's what we wanted to show in the video. That's why we kind of brushed over specs and things like that. We really wanted to show people side by side with my old school FE, this is the dimensions and you know the dials and controls are really what change it. And I think that is the big thing. I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's just a Z50. And in a lot of ways, yes, it's very uh, the, the, I'm sure that if you were to take it apart, who knows? It'll probably have a near identical circuit board inside, right? I, would I mean, so. the, the guts feel like, you know, if you look at the spec lists, it's about the same. You've got a 21 megapixel sensor, burst rate 11 frames per second. It does oversampled um, uh, 4K video at up to 30 frames per second, which is nice. But I mean, as soon as you throw all those specs away, this camera really is about the experience of using it. Yes. And it's the first time I feel that we've had a return to the classic nostalgia from anybody outside of Fujifilm. And I, okay, Leica's always been there. They, they never really changed. But yeah. uh, I, I would like to see a camera like this from Canon. Uh, I would, I I think that this might add merit to the Pentax brand, actually, if they came out with a camera, uh, that styled based on the classic love of, of Pentax that we've had in the past, you know, but 
some manufacturers haven't been there. Like I've, I've got a Panasonic's very, very first camera. Um, it's not exactly a classic style that one would like to replicate. <laughs> it's classic from uh, the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. But, uh, but I, even Panasonic, if, if they made a Lumix camera that looked and felt like a, a film camera from anywhere yeah. from the 1950s through the seventies, uh, I think that would be absolutely fantastic. And I would buy one in a heartbeat. Well, I mean, look, Fuji did such a good job. You know, they sort of copied their Fujika line of cameras. Um, and every time we talk about handling and review these cameras, a big part of it has to be said, it's the experience that changes. So, you know, kudos to Nikon for actually doing this. I think it's a great step in the right direction. I was kind of playing off the Pentax. You know, I'd always say to the Nikon reps, you got to make this camera. And they're like, yeah, yeah, Chris, shut up. We're tired of hearing about it, right? <laughs> and I would tell the Pentax rep, like a K1000, a D1000, you know, I mean, how many people people grew up with that camera that now have the disposable income that they want to have fun with something i mean pentax should have done that a long time ago and you know olympus did it with their olympus omd series you know i mean they, they even took the om uh, name and they're they're styling the prisms and everything the evf housing looks very similar to a classic om prism so i mean they did a good job there as well so i think all the other manufacturers should have been playing on some of their heritage i think there's a lot of people who are you know, our age that want to feel this nostalgia, but there's also a lot of people that are, you know, late teens, early twenties, and they just kind of love that styling and they want to have that more tactile experience. And oh, you really- know, I'm a total hipster. Uh, you know, yeah, and I, you are. I, I, I feel to myself, like I, I am the guy with a Nixie tube clock on my desk. Right. Okay. So, I mean, <laughs> I have typed letters to people on an antique Underwood typewriter because I own one and if somebody gets a letter in the mail for me, and this doesn't happen very often, but you can actually see that the paper has been semi-depressed, like yeah. almost like the, the puncture, because you got to use that a lot of force with those things. Um, then it just feels a little bit more special in some strange way that most people won't care about, but it's sure. the experience uh, at the end of it. And, you know, do I do I own a whole set of records on vinyl? No. Will I in the future? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I might. I, I might go that far. But this is the proper marriage of that classic styling that we all want to love mm-hmm. uh, in in those cameras. When you pick it up and you hold it, and it just it feels good. Yet you're not sacrificing your modern conveniences yeah. uh, along the way. And uh, I I almost wish that it was more expensive and more of a camera, like a, a hmm. 30 megapixel uh, camera with a couple of extra features. Uh, in, in your video on DP Review TV, you had mentioned that it does not have a toggle between manual uh, focus and autofocus, and that would be a nice thing to have. Uh, but uh, and, a, and a UHS-2 card slot uh, rather than a one, uh, mm-hmm. just to, to nudge things up a little bit. It, but it, it feels like for its price point, you're not going to get much better than that. You pay a hundred dollar premium versus the Z50 and you're paying that premium for the experience. And that I think is actually a small price to pay for a, what what I would consider uh, a much different and classic experience with a camera. 
it's not wildly expensive. Um, you know, I do wish, you know, that little, that little, um, LCD panel on top. I actually wish that it had a battery indicator button. You know, wouldn't that be great? You just push a little button and it gives you percentage of battery life remaining before you start. Oh, that would be cool. Yeah. That would be good too. But you know, of course, everybody's saying, well, why not go full frame? This should have been full frame. And I think that applies more so. Well, let me say this. I think it applies less so because of the sensor quality. APS-C is fine, I think, for a camera like this, right? Fuji users are very happy with that. But more so it plays to the fact that, as we talked about in the video, Nikon doesn't have a lot of DX lens support. And so that's kind of, you know, the, the issue there. And I say DX, I mean, you know, it's it's mirrorless. It's for it's for Z mount. But, you know, that APS-C crop size lenses. There's not a lot. That 28 mil they came out with is a full frame lens. So again, you can't help but feel like nice, but not, not ideal, not made for the product. So I think Nikon has to put more support in there, but I also think if the ZFC does well, and this catches on, they could very well make a, a mirror, a mirrorless full frame version of it. And that would be awesome. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Uh, put a knocked mini on on this, right? Uh, sure. And 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 get get some uh, get some good high quality glass designed around that image sensor size in order to uh, you know help champion the product. But if they then and I understand sort of the uh, the risk reward scenario here, you want to roll out with a, a new product but you want to make it affordable. So smaller yes. sensor, smaller body, uh, hit the right price point uh, because this market isn't elastic. Uh, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, if you make a small change to the price, uh, it can have a dramatic change to the number of people that are going to buy it. Yes. Um, uh, it, it's not like uh, the, uh, the the gasoline market, for example. Uh, uh, I'm talking marketing terms here, but it, that's very elastic. You can stretch, right? Like you need a tank of gas. It doesn't matter how much it's going <laughs> to yeah. cost you. You're just going to buy it. Um, so it, you just might not travel as much afterwards, but you'll still buy that tank of gas when needed. So in this case, it's sort of the opposite, where if they were to price it too high initially, uh, then you wouldn't have enough people on the streets talking about it. Yeah. And I think right now they need to get this into people's hands and get that word of mouth going and get a buzz about it. And I think that they might be achieving that uh, with this particular camera. So um, that's, that's the key right there, Don, is, you know, um, I will say what I loved about this camera more than anything else, as far as specs or anything, whatever, was they they made a camera to feel like an old camera and they carried through with it 100%. You, you know, it wasn't like a DF where it's just superficial. This camera does handle and feel like a classic camera and it definitely gives you the experience if you want it to use a classic way of shooting. And I think that was the key thing that they had to hit well. And I feel like they didn't really make a lot of compromises there. So kudos to them for that. And uh, I definitely want one. I really want one because in my opinion... That whole style of camera, I, I think it's still the most beautiful of the classic cameras, pretty much bar none, you know? So, uh, yeah, but uh, uh, Pentax ME Super Digital would be pretty hot too, I would, <laughs> you know? And I think Pentax should really do something like that. That could I, actually... I think Rico, uh, you know, if they're not going to, to, to make the jump to mirrorless, or maybe they will doing something like this, I have no idea what their plans are. They, they've been pretty staunch about staying with flapping mirrors. But um, if they do something with classic stylings, I think that they could get away with a lot. Yeah. Um, but look at the GR. I mean, the GR is very much styled off their classic film GR cameras, and and it does well because of that. It does. Now, uh, something I didn't know until I watched your video is that, and this is a nice touch that I just love, um, that the uh, the LCD screen, which is a full tilt and swivel, uh, yeah. fully articulating, 
it has the fake leather texture on the back of mm. uh, uh and that's just phenomenal uh it, it's a bit weird when you think that it's also offered in coral pink and some flavor of teal <laughs> and all sorts of other oh tan uh, and white and yeah all and so <laughs> uh and so you'd you'd have that you know uh coral pink rear lcd screen uh well the, the back side of it anyhow so i uh, i mean maybe that's taking it too far i'm not sure if those colors are really needed but they're testing <laughs> the market with this and i think that's yeah. the key they are seeing what works and what doesn't because they believe and i'm putting words in their mouth here i'm making this up but i'm of the opinion that they believe that this is going to be a growing market and they need to use this as a uh, as a research tool as well as a successful product on its own all right. Talking about research, talking about retooling, possibly. Mm. It's a terrible segue. Um, another <laughs> story from DP Review, uh, although it, it originates from Instagram. Uh, Instagram alienates photography community after CEO's recent statement. Mm. And so this goes to um, a, an Instagram post by Adam Masseri um, that uh, basically... He says in this video, and you can see that on Instagram, uh, that we are no longer a photo sharing app or a square photo sharing app. And uh, obviously, you've been able to upload non-square photos to Instagram for a, a long time. And mm. they've been lending more towards videos and stories and uh, more engaging, sometimes momentary or fleeting content, um, because that's just where the market is going. And you see the rise of TikTok and, and so many other people. Uh, in in this space um, that are experimenting with video and Instagram's next big experiments are going to be focused on the uh, the video realm and they also mentioned messaging and more interaction I'm sure uh, and they said that they'd be very public about how they're testing this but people took that statement of we're no longer a photo sharing app I think a bit too literally to say mm -hmm. that that this is, oh, well, Instagram's no longer going to be for photos. I think they're just trying to broaden their horizons a little bit. That being said, I've been seeing a lot of people jumping on Twitter saying, hey, Twitter seems like a great place for photography these days. Uh, and, you know, I've got followers on both platforms. Uh, I get a better response from my photography on Instagram, um, partly because... Uh, and th this is not a, a fault or flaw of any system. It's just their differences that Twitter limits my character count quite considerably. Instagram still limits it, but not nearly as much. Yeah. Facebook and Flickr and others are completely free form. I could write a novel with an image post <laughs> uh, and nobody's going to cut me off. Um, so I guess my, my question to you is, what do you think about this um, announcement from the Instagram CEO, but also where photographers should be focusing their interests uh, mm. in social media? Because we only have so much time in each day and we should be spending at least some of that shooting. Yeah, it, it's an interesting one. I was surprised that he would make a comment like that because, you know, you always think, I mean, when you, when you think, when you think marketing lingo and you think like, you know, planning out a big announcement, the sort of salesman in me would be like, well, why wouldn't you say, don't worry, you know, we're continuing our well-loved photo platform as always, but we're just adding these exciting new features, right? That's what I would expected them to say, because that's what most people say. So. Hey, it was a mobile focused <laughs> video. It was a video yeah. from his cell phone at his desk 
angled slightly up and his hands were huge and waving around because cell phones have wide angle lenses that do not lend themselves well to, to, to human structures. Yeah. Uh, and it, there was one cut in the video uh, and it looks like, I, I don't think there was multiple takes of this. It might've been rehearsed, but I don't think that they were going for the super polished, like Apple style announcement yeah. of things. Absolutely. It was just an off the cuff kind of thing, which I actually like to see from a, from a CEO. So long as, you know, it's probably been vetted through the <laughs> powers that be and, and whatever else. He's not saying anything terrible. Um, but if there's a level of honesty and transparency with a large social media company, and of course, Instagram is owned by Facebook and right. Uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there, there's evil, uh, yes. that, that could possibly be within such platforms. <laughs> um, you just have to look at lawsuits filed around the world and you probably find some dastardly things. Um, but you know, you don't see Mark Zuckerberg showing up on, on a Facebook feed and just kind of expressing what the next steps are. No. Uh, so I kind of liked it. In, in, well, in for sure. Sense. Yeah. I mean, we never know what's going to happen, but clearly, obviously platforms like TikTok are going crazy and, you know, having fast reels like YouTube shorts and stuff. That's kind of where a lot of the polls going. And of course they want to market and, and push those directions. But I personally don't really see Instagram abandoning their photographic community. And, uh, I still think it's probably the best sort of, as you say, combination mix of being able to present your photos fairly well, but also be able to say certain things about them, tell more of a story with them. You know, uh, I've heard a lot of people are switching over to Twitter for that, but I like to keep my social separate. You know, for me, Twitter is like, that's where I spew out daily thoughts and weird rants or I'm going to post food photos on Twitter, right? (laughs) Yeah, there you you go. No, right. It's weird. So, you know, and Twitter is so like sort of political and it's, you know, it's very sort of conversation based. And so I I hope Instagram keeps its photo platform going the way it is. I don't think they're going to get rid of it. I mean, you know, I think a lot of people still rely on that on a regular basis. I think it's the foundation that they're just trying to build on top of. Um, And and sometimes you've got to dig into the foundation and change some of the uh, the core elements. And Instagram's always been mobile focused and they mentioned that their video uh, at least initially they said that things are going to be flexible and constantly changing with feedback um, but they said that their video experience is going to be mobile centric which probably means a lot of uh, you know vertical video right. um, which I, I, I'm always I, I was always against vertical video because I would always be viewing it on a horizontal screen and it just didn't make any sense, right? It just, it it was a format mismatch. Um, But if you have vertical video on a vertical screen uh, and for whatever reason, that is, uh, you know, that's key. And you can compose Mm -hmm. photos horizontally or vertically. You can do the same for video. Sure. Uh, You know, so there's, I think, uh, a market for that, especially if you know that that's going to be what you're after. Um, one thing I've always disliked about Instagram is you can't really search it well. Um, mm. and, and it's not often well indexed by search engines like Google, uh, because especially we just passed Canada day and I have an image that is constantly infringed, uh, by a lot yeah. of people, my maple leaf flag image, which people listening to this podcast know well about. And so <laughs> I spent time over the past, a uh, couple of days, um, rounding up infringements and sending takedown notices to p- 
people posting it to their personal accounts or, uh, you know, just non-commercial stuff. The commercial stuff gets evaluated. And uh, usually if there's commercial messaging and such, then that gets put in a file to be sent to my lawyers, unfortunately. Yeah. But, but for the takedowns, I will give this to Instagram and Facebook. They are the fastest responders to takedown hmm. messages. They will respond to a takedown notice, whether it's through their web forms or a formal DMCA uh, takedown letter to their uh, proper email address to it. They've been responding at least over the past weekend, which is the Independence Day weekend in the US. So I'm surprised at that. But they've been responding sometimes within a minute. Hmm. Uh, sometimes within five and sometimes within 24 hours, but I've, I'm shocked. I send the notice and I actually get the email of my confirmation of my report after the confirmation of the deletion, uh, of, so they're, they're lightning fast with hmm. that. And I love that, uh, that they are becoming more and more responsive. They never used to be this way. Uh, and so I'm sure that there are some things happening behind the scenes, uh, to be a little bit more consumer focused, um, but, uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I would yeah. love a better search functionality in Instagram so I could find more of my infringements, which I know are out there that are just undiscovered. <laughs> yeah. Um, You're kind of dependent on an algorithm, just, you know, suggesting people to you that steal your stuff done. My, my yeah. solution, <laughs> my solution is I just don't take photos that people want to steal. I highly recommend that. It works great for me. <laughs> <laughs> that that is a great strategy why didn't i think of that um that's but, why i'm here uh, to help you out <laughs> thank you chris so uh instagram is changing um but yeah. i don't i don't think that they are changing for the worse i think they're changing for the better and i think as photographers if you are not exploring video content right now you should be um and you should be adding that to your portfolio and to have a platform that you're already using, that you already have an audience established with, um, you know, th there's a reason why this transition is happening yeah. because people like this content. And if you could try to build a narrative into a single frame and you're successful, congratulations. But what tools could you do to build a narrative into 30 seconds? How much more could you tell a story? a short story in a very short period of time. And I've, I've read short stories and, and essays, uh, you know, that, that might only be a couple of paragraphs and can be quite powerful. And I've read hundred, multiple hundred pages novels, and, and they're also quite powerful. They're just different mediums. And I think, I think that photographers should spend a little bit more time experimenting with short form stories uh, yeah. and, and to build some narratives into less than minute videos uh, because it will expand your skill set quite significantly well, and you sure. might find more uses for them. Yeah, you'll have more fun. And, and honestly, the engagement's better in most cases. You know, I mean, we do a lot. To, well, I do a lot of one minute episodes for Borough Trout Fitters for the fly store that, that I help out um, because the engagement's great. You know, you put together, as you say, under a minute. I feel like people are so quick to flip through photographs. You know, we're, we've trained our brains now with, with social media. It's really got to stop you and hold you to get you to read the tag, read the comments and, and sort of, you know, hold on to the photograph. We're very good at flipping by, but a video, you'll always give it usually a few seconds just to kind of build up. What's this about? Where are they going? You know, 
And uh, I think there's more potential to just kind of hold, hold a person there and then get a story across. Now, of course, it has to be a good story, not just necessarily marketing or whatever to piss people off. But, you know, I, the engagement's always so much better when we do videos uh, through Instagram. I still think there's a place for both, but uh, it's going to go where the market lends it to go. You know, I mean, I'm worried that the entire social media universe is just to become a bunch of memes and pranks. And that's like how we're going to communicate with each other from now on is I'll just make a prank or meme video for you, Don, and, and you know, express how I'm feeling that day. Uh, and then I'm going to bring that up when I'm feeling that way. And uh, <laughs> and I'll express that back to you at some point, uh, you know, with your permission, of course, because otherwise <laughs> that would be copyright infringement. And right. Memes are almost always copyright infringement and i'm not going to go down that rabbit hole right no. <laughs> now uh but uh but when you're shooting video uh you are often going to be eating up a lot more storage space and you might have a um a network attached storage device i have multiple um and you might have products from western digital which i consider to be a a fairly reputable uh, company uh, sure. they own sandisk now they, they bought them a couple of years back um which I had used for the longest time as my go-to uh, memory card manufacturer. I never had any of them fail. Uh, and I still continue to use Western Digital uh, Red Pro drives in just anything that I'm building if I need that level of storage and I, uh, I'm i not uh, needing an SSD mm. in exchange. And so um, this comes, uh, a DP Review uh, did report on it, but there was some added knowledge that I found in a, a Petapixel article. A major vulnerability affects all Western digital NAS devices running OS3. So they have mm -hmm. their own operating system. Um, yeah. And uh, turns out, they did fix this, but they didn't fix it in OS 3. <laughs> they fixed it in OS 5. So the yeah. newest version, or I guess uh, there, there might be a newer one, but it's not mentioned in this article. OS 5, I believe, is current. And so they fixed some vulnerabilities that, I mean, it's a zero-day uh, vulnerability. I don't know the exact specifics based on on this content and, and article. But when you have the, the first one that we talked about uh, previously on this podcast, um, yeah, you can lose all your data. You know, it, it was a wormable exploit that people could just kind of uh, wipe it, break in and wipe it. And some people just want to watch the world burn. And so mm -hmm. all your family memories disappear. Um, so more vulnerabilities uh, in a new report published by security journalist Brian Krebs found that Western digital products running the company's MyCloud OS3 software have a zero day vulnerability that can only be fixed by upgrading to the company's OS5. So this is a, a PSA for anybody that has a Western digital device. See if you are eligible for an upgrade. The upgrade actually removes some features. And in devices that are barely capable of the upgrade, you might actually have issues with them. Some people actually said that they had to wipe their data in order for the yeah. device to become normalized again. Um, but the kicker is that some OS3 devices just can't upgrade to OS5. And yeah, yeah you know what, you're on, you're on your own. Um, Data is our lives uh, at this point in the game, right? K keeping things in the cloud, you know, you're, you're, as we were just talking about, your social media accounts uh, hold so many of your memories, but, you know, the stuff that comes off your camera, a lot of it doesn't get up onto those platforms. It's mm -hmm. tucked away on larger drives in your own uh, control. And wh what do you do personally to keep your data safe? And what do you think Western Digital should do in their current predicament? Yeah, this is this is a crazy one because I think what it brings up is the dirty kind of the dirty secret 
in, in digital photography and, and the sort of deepest fear that all digital photographers face, right? Every single one of us that shoots photos and, and you don't have to be a professional photographer. I mean, anybody who takes family pictures, right. And, and video memories and all this kind of stuff are in the same boat. It's just the dirty secret that you always fear. Oh, if I had a catastrophic failure, all of that's gone. And of course it happens to some people just force of nature, right? Flooding of the house or theft or whatever. Right. And it's, it's horrifying for people. So yeah, the scary thing here is they're offering technology to keep you feeling safe, to provide as much security as possible to at least give you peace of mind. Right. Um, I'm still pretty old fashioned, of course, Don. So I have Western <laughs> digital drives, but I've got Seagates and I've got old. And, you know, right now it's a mess. It's always one of those things that feels like a chore that I have to stay on top of. But right now I just have a mishmash of different drives and I just duplicate or triplicate my, my data across standard hard drives. But I'm still doing it old school. I'm just doing magnetic drives or SSDs into a toaster, manually copying things over. And of course, the onus is on me then to make sure I have backed up everything that I need to back up, right? But, you know, I I would love to have the security of having something that automatically, um, you know, backs up my files, is connected to my computer constantly. And uh, this puts the fear of, of, you know, that that loss into, into my head. And it makes sense that it was Western Digital, as you say. They're a big name; everybody knows them, right? You know, the, the hackers decided to go after them. You know, and maybe there was weaknesses in the firmware. I don't know, but you always feel like firmware should be something that takes care of these issues, right? We're used to updates protecting us from the constant wave of malware and hackers and bad people, right? And so it's unfortunate here that you have a, a thing that either can't be updated firmware-wise, or if it does, actually reduces the quality of the experience for you right especially for photographers um well they've done this with iphones you know like you you get an update to the latest uh, ios version on a phone that really shouldn't have gotten that update because it was just the hardware was a generation too too Mm -hmm. old to really perform well and i think that's i mean i I think there's a conspiracy of planned obsolescence to be honest with you because you get the update and then the phone is more sluggish sure you've got new features but it doesn't perform like it used to and and so on you want to buy the new one um but i i I still think that you can backport uh uh, fixes to software vulnerabilities microsoft even uh this was it this past year or at least recently and well out of cycle went back and did a software update for windows xp because there was uh, an extremely uh you know important vulnerability that just needed to be addressed for the security of things like military hardware and ATMs (laughs) and point of sale stuff and just things that were critical old infrastructure that just needed this fix. Um, And I think it would behoove Western Digital because Microsoft is a company that does software and they've been doing it for their entire time, but they're not a company that marks their their reputation solely on data integrity. But Western Digital is, right? You know, and when I used to buy a SanDisk Pro memory card, it would come with a little um, a little piece of paper with a download code for data recovery software. Should I ever need it, there was a license to, to use it to recover my data. I never had to, um, but it was an extra little kind of vote of confidence there to say, yeah, you know, at Western Digital, you got my back, right? You know, you're, you're doing this right. 
I don't see that right now. Uh, and if this is a, a software vulnerability and they have access to all of their old software and probably the same engineers still work there, uh, how much would it really cost them to go mm. in and, and plug the hole? Right. I, I don't think that would be too arduous a task in order to maintain their reputation. Yes, the products that are only supporting OS3, they're, um, they're, uh, they're end of life, right? They, they have, their product cycle is over, but people are still using them because their products are supposed to be used for a very long time. That's the whole nature of buying something that's not going to die on you. Um, and, and so w when you see, uh, this flagrant disregard because they, they stated without any question that no, we, we're not going to go back and fix this flaw. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that just leads a disservice into your customer base and uh, they might turn up to a different service for the next product that they buy, especially if it's, you know, relating to the same problem. I'm still yeah. buying Western digital hard drives. Um, I would never buy one of their NASs now that this is yeah, their attitude. Right. Um, I've been using Synology NASs for quite some time, but before that I had used a uh, Drobo and they had a really cool uh, proprietary RAID system uh, where you can combine a bunch of disks of different capacities and yeah. it would aggregate it around to give you full uh, data redundancy, even if the disks are not the same capacity, et cetera. And, uh, and I thought that was cool, but uh, I've got a colleague of mine that uh, I actually sold my old Drobo too when I started buying into Synology and he had an issue where it, it didn't turn on. And he brought it to a, a, a computer uh, tech guy that was able to figure out there was a, some strange short in the power supply and he fixed it. Uh, so he got it back up and running. But he said, you know, don't don't depend on this completely yeah. anymore. The thing about that, it's proprietary. If Drobo as a company goes away and I don't I haven't heard much of them anymore. I, I think they're still in business. But but if they're not, then. Uh, what do you do when all of your data is dependent on this proprietary system that is no longer serving you? Um, mm -hmm. So I, I'd made the jump to, uh, to Synology and uh, using standard RAID 1 or RAID 5, RAID 6 arrays. Uh, RAID 6 is uh, uh, and probably what you should be doing uh, these days so long as you have an array with enough drives. Um, and uh, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm looking at you, Chris, because you've got all of your <laughs> things in various and sundry places. And yeah, uh, I just hide them in different cabinets and in different bags and, you know, stuff. And it they're under all mislabeled. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what's on them. I have to basically plug them in and be like, oh, it's 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 honestly like looking in shoe boxes from your childhood. I, I find it whimsical and nostalgic and I love it. But yeah, it you know, I mean, really, I guess I first I think a lot of the other companies are going to now really start cracking down on their their software and making sure that they're safe and secure because this is a pretty big flub. Um, what about cloud-based storage, right? I mean, does this push people now even more so to just rely on third-party companies and their, you know, multiple backed up servers and, you know, spread all over the world kind of thing? I mean, does that make more sense? How do you feel about uploading all of your data that way and just having access to it uh, wherever you are? I would not want to do it with a company that has a motive for a subscription of other things like Adobe, um, right. where 
if I upload it to the Adobe Cloud, if I were to cancel my Adobe subscription, then my my data is tied to that. I'd want a company interested in just preserving my data, for mm-hmm. one. Um, there are a number of companies that offer unlimited data backup, but it's usually for a direct attached storage device, like a portable hard drive or an internal hard drive. Um, or they have the caveat that it is for personal use only. Uh, and if they you know, see my account and what I'm uploading uh, by any means and say, oh, you're using this for professional purposes, delete. Right. Uh, and so I don't, I don't want to take that risk. And I know that there are some companies, I can't remember if it was Backblaze or somebody uh, in a previous episode had recommended me take a look at because they do offer free unlimited backup or not, not free, but you know, w- with a set price. Yeah, but you read the fine print and it's not for commercial purposes. And so, right. you know, the business is dependent on this. And um, I, I looked up the, the amount of data that I have right now. Synology has their own backup system uh, as well into the cloud that you can interface directly with the network attached storage device. Uh, and it would cost me just over $200 a month US uh, to have all of my data in the cloud. And that's a big price, right? It is. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't feel like that's affordable enough yet for me, but I'm an outlier. Uh, I, I've got, I've got many, many terabytes in the double digits of data uh, <laughs> that I'm, I'm trying to coalesce in, in, in a way here that is safe and secure. Um, but at the same time, I know the cloud is probably the future. Um, hmm. It's just getting the cost per terabyte low enough before I'm willing to to, to bite and, uh, and and see where that takes me. Well, and as you say, all the other little strings that are involved, right, and the fine print, and and yeah, being attached to other subscription prices. I mean, it's it's honestly a very difficult thing, and and I could see how a lot of people are out there listening right now, or have been going down this route, and are are honestly confused and terrified about what the best step forward is. It's not necessarily a clear-cut situation and yeah these issues with western digital just kind of muddies the waters again well it's clear enough cut that i'm cutting western digital nasas away from (laughs) any recommendations i make to people there you Uh, go right but you know it's it's a scary it's a scary thing right it's always that fear and that that uh, stress that that photographers will face I, I've, I haven't had a drive fail, but but I, I did have a, a, a different colleague had a drive fail. And when their NAS was rebuilding itself, which can take a long time when you replace right. the drive with a new one, that is a sleepless night. Um, <laughs> because, you know, if you only have one disk redundancy, uh, you, you are uh, on the edge of your seat until that gives oh, you yeah. a green light at the end of it again. Um, but anyhow... Uh, Chris, you were mentioning uh, shoeboxes from your childhood, um, which I'm going to make another terrible segue here into our next story. <laughs> Some people try to use old shoeboxes or old matchboxes for that matter to, uh, uh, ma- matter, uh, to make uh, pinhole cameras. And pinhole cameras can be fun. In fact, I've got a, uh, a lens cap that uh, I drilled a hole through, or not a lens cap, a um, uh, camera body cap. Uh, and then I taped a piece of tinfoil on, and I mm-hmm. poked a hole with a pin in it, and that actually makes you a pretty decent pinhole camera for uh, oh, yeah. your you know, your modern digital camera. Uh, and you could poke multiple holes if you want to be fancy, make it like a sieve. Uh, <laughs> you could do all this with just totally. a, a pin and uh you know i should do a video on this type of thing because it's just it's interesting it's fun um but lens baby uh another article from dp review announces a new obscura system 
I'm assuming named after Camera Obscura, which is uh, the inception of imaging to begin with. Yes. A modern take on pinhole photography. And so, yeah, um, I've got a hard time finding the modern in this other than... (laughs) Uh, other than the marketing and uh, the, oh, they've got two different modules uh, that have uh, you know different amount of lights and uh, quote unquote focal lengths. The difference is where the uh, the actual hole is positioned in distance from the sensor. Um, uh, Lens Baby as a company, I, I don't think they're a bad company. I think they do a, a lot of cool stuff, and I've used some of their lenses that really muck and bend with light in different and and fun ways that just give you a unique look in a way that people will often go back to old school lenses like a Helios 44 to get a swirly bokeh effect. You can use a lens baby to get some really cool quirky bending of light and turn it into an art project and photography is art. So why not embrace Mm -hmm. that? But a pinhole, (laughs) what do you think? Well, you know, so on the one hand, it, it makes sense because you know if you look at if you look at Lens Baby's sort of mission statement, as it were, they're trying to bring back this kind of analog, fun, no rules kind of photography, right? And so, if I look at it in a positive note, that makes sense. You know, pinhole is one of that was the first camera that I ever really played with. I mean, in my basic photography class that I took back in university, which you might have remembered, I failed. Um, <laughs> I, you know, we made pinhole cameras. We did the whole, you know, you could find a coffee can or shoebox, or you know, we put brass sheets and we'd use a diamond needle file to kind of smooth out the the hole, the lens, so to speak. And um, you know, that that's part of the that that's that's an interesting look. I could see why Lens Baby's doing that because it kind of goes in line with what they play with. But on the other hand, Don, I'm like, you can make these out of a shoebox or a coffee can and tinfoil. And frankly, that's part of the experience, which Lens Baby is not giving you, right? They're providing yeah. you a finished product. And frankly, when you look at some of their other products, when you look at the classic Lens Baby, it's hard to create that yourself. I mean, that requires a little bit more engineering, you know, some finding ways. Bicycle inner tubes and, yeah, and some old you know, lenses you need to take apart and kind of, you stick know, you back need to make like with- an optical doublet, right? And you have to, you have to find a way to mount it to your camera properly. Like, you know, so that makes sense. Lens Baby does that for you. I get it, right? But the pinhole attachment. And as you say, there's so many things out there already, like lens caps with holes in them. I mean, you made your own, but at the camera store, we would sell a product that was already made that way, you know? And yeah, well, and, and I'm sure that there's going to be some markups on that, right? Because the core yeah. ingredients are just sort of plastic. Um, but the, <laughs> So there's two models here. The Obscura 50 has a 50 millimeter focal length, as evidenced by its name. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the zone plate has an aperture uh, of f32, uh, which... Uh, and they've got a pinhole sieve that is smaller at f64. Uh, they also have the Obscura 60 uh, standalone pancake uh, lens Obscura, obviously. <laughs> I, yes. Okay. The focal length is smaller because it is literally the the focal length. There's no optics in here. Yeah. So, you know, it's <laughs> going to be smaller. Um and uh, it has uh, a rotational uh, adjustment where you can choose between f22, f45, and f90 aperture values. And I'm pretty sure an f22 pinhole is just going to be blurry gunk. 
yeah. um, because that that's uh, that's really big for a pinhole. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think you're going to get anything useful in any meaningful context there. But hey, you know what? If you wanted <laughs> to have fun with it, have fun with it. But it's going to cost you $280 for the Obscura yeah. 50 or uh, I believe it was $250 um dollars for the obscura 35 or, or sorry uh, a 16 and um and the obscura optic on its own if you i guess were to put that into another lens baby product is 180 bucks uh, right so i'm gonna make this one a pass for me um <laughs> but the caveat being that as you mentioned chris the joy is part of creating it yourself right and yeah. if if you wanted to take a body cap, uh, drill a hole, and just take a tiny piece of uh, tin foil, put it on there, and I don't know, maybe make the pinhole not not a pinhole, maybe make it a smiley face, make it a smiley right. face, do whatever you want, <laughs> make it yours, right? Sure. And and you could do that over and over and over again with <laughs> tape and tin foil and a pin, uh, and just have the creative fun that this product is intending to give you for a fraction of the price and a heck of a lot more creativity. Sure, you know if if I want to end on a happy note, I mean I'm not going to buy it. Um, and I've tried a lot of different lens baby products and, you know, this is kind of in line with what they do. It's hit or miss. Some of their products are actually very effective. Some of their products did provide, you know, some of their lenses, you know, they're more sort of actual lenses were, were really quite nice. I mean, the I, I had a great stuff. experience with the soul 45 when I tested right? one out and, uh, it had these little arms that would kind of move in front of it, uh, to create obstructions that created interesting yeah. bokeh, uh, and it created a really cool cool sweeping effect across some macro images that I had made with it of uh, butterflies in flowers. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, talking down to the whole company. I'm just thinking this no, no. one might, might, might be a misstep. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as I said, I think it's, you know, the beautiful thing about Lens Baby is they kind of bring fun to the table. That's what you're paying for. But with a pinhole, I think the fun comes from doing it yourself. Yep. Well said. I think that, uh, that puts a pin in it. Um, <laughs> oh Don! Oh, well done, sir. <laughs> uh, the dad jokes are starting to to emerge. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's talk about our picks of the week. But before mm. we do, let's talk about where people can find you, sir, online. I mean, I I know, and I hope we all know that you are um, a a voice of, if not reason, at least opinion uh, on Deep <laughs> Review TV. Uh, and so we can find you at, uh, uh, at youtube.com slash DP review TV yes, or, absolutely. uh, however that URL is formulated. The link will be in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, but, uh, where can people find you personally to follow you on the social medias we were talking about earlier? Yeah. I mean, Instagram, I still love. So that's just chris.nichols, but it's weird. It's N-I-C-C-O-L-L-S pretty tricky to find. In fact, as a, as a statement, if you ever want to find me, just put in N-I-C-C-O-L-L-S. There's only five people or so to sort through and you'll find me there. So that's probably the best way to do it. And on Twitter as well. But uh, yeah, definitely check me out there. That'd be great. Perfect. And uh, now uh, let's get into our picks. Uh, yeah. What do you got for me this week? So, you know, um, I use quite a few Hida filters. I like a lot of their systems and I like what they do with filters. Um, 
I've just tried out the Nano Pro interchangeable magnetic variable ND filter. And this is pretty simple, right? I mean, other companies make something similar where you basically have a ring that screws in. Um, I just use stepping rings to adapt it for whatever lenses I need. Uh, and then I've got two different options for variable NDs and they just magnetically click in, uh, but they're indexed. So you can't go past the, the upper and lower range. So you don't have to worry about cross polarization or anything like that. But I've used a lot of variable NDs before, and Jordan has as well, because it seems to make sense for video, but there's often exposure problems or color cast changes is the really big thing. But I tried out the Nano Pro, and I found very little color change. I was very pleased with it uh, for a video project. They make uh, one piece that's a two to five stop, and then you can just click that out and pop in another, which is six to nine stops. So you kind of have a solution for video work and then a solution for photography. Um, and I'm super lazy done as you know and uh, I love the idea of just being able to pull one off throw it in my bag click the other one on and keep shooting uh, or um, you know uh, I, I like the fact that I can just very easily adjust the strength that of ND that I need you know and uh, it worked great on a recent video project and I didn't get anywhere color cast so I would check it out I would say if you're looking at if you're looking at variable NDs and you want something that's got the simplicity that it's not going to cross polarize and go into the bad areas where variable NDs give you weird, you know, crosses and X's on your photos and stuff, and you want something that's quick and easy to change. Yeah, it's definitely worthwhile. All right. Uh, how much does that set you back? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I'm just trying it out and testing it from them right now, but they do tend to be fairly pricey. Uh, they're good quality filters, though. And uh, I don't have a price for you here. Let's see. <laughs> well, the thing the thing is, you know, like I've I bought into a number of these systems before. Um, uh, the Alter system that I, I picked up on um, uh, on Kickstarter, which the company dissolved after they shipped them all. I guess right. this was just their their only thing, and it was it wasn't a, a magnetic release. It was uh, it was a, uh, a swivel up. So you would screw it in, but then you would have a filter uh, sort of ready in waiting, uh, sort of hanging above the camera that you could kind of drop back down um, on a hinge. Right. And I thought that might be useful, and I've never used it uh, <laughs> be because, well, it just it feels unwieldy uh, to, to, to have that. And uh, yeah, for variable NDs, I think it makes a lot more sense for the system that you're describing. For this, I thought well, it could work. If I'm doing video work, I need to uh, slap down an ND filter really quickly or for um, infrared photography, uh, if I had a, uh, a full spectrum modified camera that I could kind of slap down a particular type of filter uh, with, uh, then that would work. That would narrow yeah. it down to that particular particular spectrum. I really wish they would make somehow <laughs> somebody should invent a, um, uh, a variable, uh, uh, you know, a spectral wavelength infrared filter that I could just dial in exactly what I was after. Ooh, but I think that... Uh, I don't know if we're there with that technology. Anyhow, uh, I'm going down a rabbit hole as you have been researching a price. <laughs> well, no. So for me, I mean, what I love about the Haida is, you know, the hinge sounds cool, but I like the idea of just how simple it is. And they basically started on $150 US and then they work up from there as you go into larger sizes. So, um, you know, a pricey filter, but honestly, for a good variable ND, not that bad at all. 
Well, and you know what? Uh, you want a good variable ND. D do not buy a cheap one because mm -hmm. then you're going to get problems and, and, and you will see right away what those problems will mean to you because uh, it's going to be ruined photos and there's yeah. no way to fix that, at least right now in post, uh, the little crosshatch uh, thing that you, uh, you were describing. Oh. Um, and the same thing, uh, you want to buy a good ND filter, you want to buy a good storage device, which we talked about that earlier in my pick of the week, kind of piggybacks off of that. Uh, and I've got a big Synology NAS. It's a 12 bay unit. Um, but if I were oh. ever to be traveling and I need to have access to all of my data, um, I might need to carry it around smaller, but I would want to be secure about it. So a two bay NAS is what I'm currently experimenting with. Um, and I've been looking at, and I've got it's my recommendation, my pick of the week, the Synology disk station DS 720 plus. And so um, this is a two bay NAS. It's got a four core processor uh, in it. Um, it uh, I, I threw some 18 terabyte drives, uh, which is the highest capacity that you can get from most manufacturers in there. It is swimming along beautifully with that. It's got two gigabit ethernet ports, which by the hmm. way, uh, you can shotgun those. Uh, you, you can, uh, if you were to have, if you've got a router that has a 10 gigabit ethernet or a five gigabit ethernet port on it, and you plug both of the one gig ethernet ports on, on this unit into that, you'll get two gigabit worth through hmm. to your computer so long as the bottleneck never gets smaller than that, um, which can be useful. Uh, I haven't done that yet, but it's it's a nice feature. It's upgradable. Uh, there is uh, little ports on the bottom to put an SSD cache on, which is always nice to speed things up if you're actively accessing a lot of the same data. Um, mm. And, uh, you know, particularly useful if you're doing a, uh, a video edit and it's got to queue up all the video footage and you got to scrub it. That's all going to live in the cache uh, during that time. Uh, the RAM is upgradable as well. You can plug in an external, I think it's a five bay unit um, that has extra drive bays on it hmm. if you need to expand beyond this. But the core unit is pretty small. And with two bays, uh, it's running in RAID 1, which means it's mirrored. So if one drive right. fails, you have a complete duplicate on the other drive. You just pop out the, the bad drive, pop in a good one, hopefully the exact same model. Um, and uh, it'll, it'll heal itself. It'll copy the data over, and, uh, and it seems fully equipped to do that. It's $399 US uh, for this device. And, you know, I was talking earlier about, you know, the cost of $200 plus a month to have my data backed up in the cloud. Um, well, this device, yeah, yeah, it doesn't include the drives. And if you're buying 18 terabyte drives, they cost more than $400. But, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but, but it is a one-time fee unless stuff, uh, stuff starts to, to break. Um, and then it's in your control, hopefully, to deal with, but it's hmm. always with you and it's always fast. One of the issues with putting things in the cloud, if you want to go back to a photo shoot that you did a year ago because you didn't edit it properly or you just need to pull out more content from it or you've just been busy and you haven't gotten to it and things have been sitting around for a while and now you really want to dig in, I don't want my internet speed to be yeah. the limiting factor to get access to that from where I am here at home to anywhere where I might be in the world trying to traverse because my home internet speed can only go, I think, 25 megabits per second up. That's the, right. the fastest <laughs> speed it could possibly be. And so it's going to be a, a pretty painful task if I were to have all of that data streaming across the web. So oh, Canada. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny because my, my wife's home country of Bulgaria, whenever we go over there, um, I, I buy a, uh, a, a SIM card for my phone that has like 50 gigs of data on it for $5. Right. Uh, <laughs> And, and it's like, oh, that's, that's not my experience back in <laughs> no. Canada at all. And I'm sure if I was a local, I could get an unlimited connection for $10, yeah. right? Like, it, <laughs> any, anyhow, uh, that's, so, that's another discussion. <laughs> I, I'm curious. So how big would you say, if you had to compare this to like a real world object, how big is this two bay device? This two bay device, um, which is... Well, let me let me show you, Chris. I mean, we're we're on video, but the yeah. So the, I'll just des- I'll describe it to the people at home. Oh, that's not bad. I mean, you know, what would you say? Like a loaf of bread, <laughs> loaf of bread size. I mean, it's yeah. uh, uh, maybe slightly smaller than that, uh, or the dimensions. Maybe the total you know? volume of a uh, of a small yeah. loaf of bread. Um, but but it it's not much bigger than two hard drives themselves, right? right? That, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so you need that space, but there, there's a there's a, a motherboard inside it that uh, does not take up a lot of extra space. It's thinner than the space of a single drive. Uh, and huh. uh, it's just, it, it works really well. Uh, I like the a- idea. I like the idea that that could be a manual backup for your full backup, you know, d- depending on how much data you have to store. But, you know, we talk about these things like we're worried about data and storage and hacking and all that. But, you know, again, we talked about what if your what if your basement flooded and your main raid setup is totally destroyed in one go? You know what I mean? Yeah. It's nice that you can have something like that. Keep it at a separate location. You know, well, well, what I was going to do, uh, so long as my neighbors uh, agree to the possibility, um, <laughs> is uh, have it plugged in in their house uh, on yeah. the Wi-Fi network so that I can back up at least 18 terabytes worth of my data, uh, including uh, a constant um, refresh of my processed images, my final, like my master TIFF files and everything that I've gone through the full edits on yeah. um, uh, to have at least that as one, one of the components on this device. Um, so that if, you know, fire, flood, theft, etc. cetera, uh, so long as it, the fire doesn't consume my neighbor's house as well, uh, <laughs> then then it's on my uh, it's it's on the Wi-Fi network, right? Or, yeah. or or maybe like I don't know if it'll accept a Wi-Fi dongle or or something on there that I could have it just directly connect to my own Wi-Fi network uh, directly hmm. within the house. Um, or or I, I'm sure I can figure this setup out and say, hey, you know what? It's not going to take up a lot of power. We'll bake you cookies once in a while to pay for it. Right. Uh, and uh, and so. That might be a solution because that would be the speed of whatever your Wi-Fi connection is. It's it's a it, it's an offsite backup technically, but it's not right. at internet speeds. So that's that's I'm kind of going up that tree as a as a solution, and, and we'll see what that, yeah. that looks like. Um, but the device is supported by Synology's new DSM 7.0 DSM disk uh, a disk station manager. It's their their operating system, um, which is currently in a uh, a release candidate for the 7.0, and it's supported on this platform. And I don't recommend if it's your only. Uh, if it's your only copy, don't use release candidates or betas of anything uh, right, to secure yeah. your, your data. <laughs> but but I did throw the release candidate on just to see what it was about. And uh, it's really well polished, really hmm. easy to navigate and set stuff up. And you could even go in to the nitty gritty if you are super secure about um, your data. There's a checkbox hidden like five menus deep to... Uh, 
to enable features that will mitigate the uh, specter and meltdown vulnerabilities on Intel processors um, that could possibly, although nothing has been uh, seen in the wild to take advantage of those, to make your data extra secure. And uh, Synology often updates their software regularly with new security fixes. So, um, Especially now. Yeah. And, and <laughs> They are so security forward in so many ways and uh, you want your data safe. And so there's, yeah. there's my pick of the week. Mm. Very cool. All right, Chris. Well, thank you for being on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Uh, it's always great to hear your voice, uh, whether I'm not a part of the conversation and I'm just watching your videos on DP Review TV, uh, or I am like this. I got to have you on more often. And uh, thanks for uh, thanks for your opinions. They are always, if they're not valued, um, but I, I should say this, they're always valued. I might not always agree with you, but, <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, but you always have a valued opinion, uh, for which I am welcoming debate on. Um, but thank uh, you for not just going onto the forums and saying terrible things about my opinions. Uh, oh, I, I do I that like, too. Under <laughs> uh, oh, I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's always great being on this show. I really appreciate you having me back on. It's uh, great to see you. It's great to talk to you again. I know it's always such long periods of time in between and, uh, yeah, it's great to see you again. And to the listeners, thank you so much for staying through an entire new episode of this podcast. Uh, look forward to the next one. We will see you all there. And until then, it's time to stay in and shoot. Uh-oh.